Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Nick Boothman. Nick is a best-selling author, motivational speaker, and a licensed master practitioner of neurolinguistic programming. He's considered a leading authority on face-to-face communication and serves as a consultant to individuals, groups, and corporations that want to learn the skills needed to connect with others. Today, he's going to teach some of those skills to you. He has authored several books, including How to Make People Like You in 90 Seconds or Less and How to Make Someone Fall in Love with You in 90 Minutes or Less. Nick, thank you so much for coming on our show today. My great pleasure. (laughs) Can you tell me a little bit about your background and your journey on how you became a communication expert? Well, yeah, I'll tell you how it's relevant to this. Ever since I was about uh, 12 years old, I've been desperate to get a girlfriend. And um, so I tried everything. I was not a very attractive child growing up in England. I was tall. I had (laughs) freckles. And uh, so I thought, you know what? When I was about 14, I thought, you know what? If I sing in a band, maybe I'll find a get a girl because the girls will go for the guys in the band. This is in the north of England way back. So I started singing in a band, and I, and yeah, sure, there were plenty of girls around, <clears throat> and and uh, and that was good. But then I thought, well, you know, what about getting the right girl? So I thought, what can I do? So uh, after spending uh, six years traveling all over Europe singing in bands, I just thought, you know what? I think I'll become a fashion photographer. That's bound to get some really beautiful women. And I became a fashion photographer simply by speaking up and saying I could do it. I got a job immediately with a, with a newspaper and shot fashion which led to a 25-year career as a fashion photographer with studios on uh, in uh, six cities, uh, and also met uh, the woman of my dreams, who I've married to now for 46 years, and we're truly madly deeply, and it's the second marriage for both of us. So we've seen both sides of it. Um, then people, then I basically then started, I thought I want to be a speaker, and I want to be a speaker, you need a best-selling book, so I wrote How to Make People Like You in 90 Seconds or Less, which has now sold more than 3 million copies and is in over 30 languages around the world. And finally, someone said, look, you've been married for a long time. You've got that figured out. Why don't you write a book about finding the right person? Because all my books are based on modeling excellence. It's not really what Nick thinks. It's, re- it's what, for example, for the love book, for how to make someone fall in love with you in 90 minutes or less, we looked at 2,400 couples who've been together for more than 20 years and were still actively crazy about each other. And and look for common threads. We found we found uh, we modeled excellence. Found out what they do. We looked at people who consistently got it wrong and found out what they do. So really, I'm more an ex. Uh, obviously, charisma's in there or charm, as we used to call it. Um, but mostly, it's not about it's not about picking up you know lots of girls and women or whatever you want to say. Like when I was singing in a rock and roll band in the sixties. Um, it's about finding the right person uh, because the, the great truth is that falling in love and staying in love have got nothing to do with each other. They're completely separate events. But if you get elements of staying in love uh, right before you actually go and fall in love, your chances go through the roof for happiness. So that's really where I'm coming from. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a great place. And it's a place of, of maturity, right? Because as a young guy, and young guys listening to this are probably going through this, where they're just like, how do I get a girl? And then how do I date more attractive women or more women that I'm more attracted to or more I desire more? Um, but then there is this point where you realize, actually, I want something a little bit deeper and a little bit more meaningful. And 
And it sounds like you're sharing the things that you learned as a consequence of that process. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, it is like that. You know, the thing is basically in, in the book, in the book, I have all the charts, all the things where you can find out in, within four seconds whether this, relate, this person has got potential with you. Um, because the truth is men fall in love at first sight maybe four times a day. Um, but that's not a great thing. It has to be mutual. Otherwise, there's no future in it. And I've got, I've got charts and I've got tests in the book that you can find out about that. But, you know, the, the, the truth is that for all of us, and all of us are different, someone has to tick the boxes on what, on what we physically uh, are looking for. Uh, what you know, what what deal breakers, etc., and things that I can't, I couldn't stand someone who looked or did this sort of. I don't want someone who holds their knife and fork like they're going to rip their food to pieces because one day it's going to be a big deal between us. But but um, and but also for the rest of your life, you're with a personality. That's what you're. That's really what you're getting hitched up to. Someone with a personality that, you, that blows you away. And you said you know mature and and etc. But you know what we when we looked at what holds great cup because I'm always asked on TV you know okay so what are the secrets of staying together? The biggest one of all is finding someone that you can be silly with. That's a really huge thing. So it's actually not about being super mature. It may be about being seasoned, but somebody that you can be silly with and someone who looks great too, in your opinion. So that's really what it's about. And I know that uh, I am some considered somewhat now male, pale and stale because I've been doing this for such a long time. But you know what? I, it's nothing much has changed when it comes to finding the right person who um, will accompany you through your life. Because really, we, we use the word love, but love can mean all sorts of things. I love chocolate. Uh, but really, it's about, uh, about finding someone for whom you have mutual uh, enthusiasm. You're very enthusiastic about each other all the time. And that two people who consistently bring out the best in each other. That's really what you're looking for. Sorry about that. I, the other thing is that we don't actually fall in love with other people. We fall in love with the feelings we get when we're with them. That's what we do. And we, we've, what we found was that what we do with those, uh, with those feelings is um, we should be turning them into stories. In fact, the very word romance is the French word for story. And so... Uh, when I talk about romantic uh, uh, dates or, or doing something romantic, it's not a box of chocolates and a, and a quick, you know, fish and chips down the pub. It's doing something which is story worthy. It's doing something that when you go to work next day and you tell your friends, well, oh, my gosh, you won't believe what happened last night, uh, that they hate you for 10 minutes because that never happens to them. Because it's you can get a great story out of it. Great romance is built on great stories. And so... That's what we found. We also found that great couples are what I call matched opposites, uh, which is a blend, of a very identifiable blend of, um, of being like attracts like and opposites attract. Because opposites attract, if it's just opposites attract, it's fabulous. It works for about a month and then you get sick of each other. You drive each other crazy. Um, uh, like attracts like, two people who are too much like each other get bored stiff with each other sooner or later, and usually within a year, then someone else comes along and off you go. Matched opposites are a very artful blend. Uh, be, it, matched opposites share the same motivations and values. In other words, you might share a sense of humor, a sense of decency, a sense of, of, of honor, a sense of duty, whatever. Your motivations are shared. In other words, you both basically want to go over the same horizon together, and you want to do the similar things together. But personality-wise, you must be different. Otherwise, you will just... Uh, oh, I, I talk in the, in the book about mental minefields and, and what can happen. So you, when you find your matched opposite, uh, in fact, I'm looking for it right now. There's a chart in the book. 
in each per each person has um, one key feeling, and uh, in each person there you, there is one key feeling, and there are only four key feelings uh, when we look through the, all these two thousand four hundred people. Some people more than anything in the world want to feel in control. Some people more than anything in the world want to feel uh, smart, or intelligent, or taken seriously. Some people want to feel valued, and others want to feel important. Sure, we want all of those, but it, one dominates each person. You can find out what you are in the book. So let's say you, more than anything else in the world, once you've looked and found your key feeling, want to feel important. Then the moment you're with somebody, it doesn't matter what they're saying, uh, but the moment you're with somebody, if that person makes you feel important, it has potential. Uh, and and it is, it, it's that simple, but it has to be mutual. So it has to be that you do the same for them. And those are the couples that stay together, that are matched opposites. And, uh, and that was, in fact, in all 2,400 couples we looked at, one that had been together for more than 20 years, only one couple were just matched, matched and matched, not matched opposites. And they have since split up because uh, we, we, we've kept in touch with our people. So, it, look, it's, it's, uh, it works. It works. It's, and it's that simple. And you know something? I, I was I spoke at a bridal show once at a bridal event, which I don't normally do because I don't speak about love uh, to corporations because they don't want that. They want leadership stuff. But but I spoke to this audience and in the front five rows were brides to be. And they were all sitting there listening, thinking that words of wisdom are going to come out of my mouth. And, and so, so I started telling them all this stuff about matched opposites and about uh, all about romance, etc. They were kind of mocking me. They were all sort of laughing and nudging each other in the in the ribs and going, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Behind them were about eight rows of parents and married people. So whilst the first six rows were sort of thinking I didn't know what I was talking about, the next 12 rows were all grinning and nodding going, this guy, he's got it, he's got it. You know, you have to go through failed relationships to figure out, but yes, it's matched opposites. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. In my observation, like as somebody who's around this like a lot, I've noticed that at least early in courtship that we usually say that attraction is connected to a perception of value. Somebody needs to perceive you as being valuable or some something about you as being valuable. And when they do, they try to get close to you. If I'm thirsty and I perceive water as being valuable, I try to get close to water. If if uh, somebody makes you feel good and you value that, then you'll try to get close to them. Um, if you are into guitar and maybe, or you're into music and somebody plays guitar and you find that valuable, you'll try to get close to them. I think it's true if you're a confident person. I can I can see a lot of people who want to be close to somebody but will, but just won't. They'll just hover, uh, but they won't they won't speak up. Um, confident people tend to be very, very different to people who lack confidence in, in, in loving relationships. I, I definitely agree with that. The reason why I brought that first example up is because I think it sort of goes along, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, with your idea of, of these matched opposites, right? Like somebody isn't really good at music, but somebody else is good at so they're attracted to them for that. Or um, somebody wants to be smart, but they think their partner is really smart. And so intelligence is something they value. And so they're drawn to them. Is that along the lines of what you're thinking? Or is it something entirely different? Some people do need to feel intelligent. Yeah, but it's not long. You know, it's here's the thing. When I speak to corporations, they get the chance to hear from nice Nick, who tells them what they want to hear, or nasty Nick, who tells them what they need to hear. 
So I, I will throw in, <laughs> into this conversation some bits of nice Nick and some bits of nasty Nick, because the, the truth is, for example, they want to hear what Uncle Charlie and Auntie Mary have been telling them for the last 40 years, that they're really pretty and, they, oh, this person's perfect for you. You'll really like them. They're just like you. Well, you know what? That will not work. Um, uh, I think most people, we have this this draw for unity with somebody else, which is which is God-given, which we all, we all come from the same energy source and we all return to it, but separated from it in our physical bodies, we long for, for, for unity with somebody again, somebody we can trust and give us feedback, because that, that's a huge deal when you find the right person, someone who can give you feedback and you can uh, respect it. For someone who says, you know, you were a complete idiot last night when you did that, and you think, oh my gosh, I'm gonna, not going to do that again because it's someone you you respect. But I think it really is. If you know, if if you can learn charisma, and I'm not sure you can. I think you can learn charm, uh, um, because charisma includes all kinds of things, including being uh, symmetrical, having a symmetrical body features. Uh, that's that's we are ten, we are drawn to people who have symmetrical features, and you can't do much about that. Please don't try and fix that. Uh, but uh, but when it comes to to charm, we can learn charm. And uh, and we can make ourselves more attractive uh, and more approachable by other people, as you know. Obviously, you started this off. You're doing everything right. You you started a conversation with a, a statement followed by an open question, which is how you get people talking, get people talking, keep them talking. But the truth is, when you find, it's not about looking. The day you stop looking, you find what you want. The day you stop trying so darn hard, you think, oh my gosh, and that you find the right person, and you and you. Get close, not get close, whatever. You, When you find the right, one-third of the population, there are stats out there, one-third of the population fell in love, falls in love at first sight and stays mutually in love at first sight, stays that way. I know that from, from, from writing this book and an enormous amount of research, enormous amount of research we did outside the 2,400 people. And when I handed my manuscript in to work for my publisher in New York, I thought, they're going to say to me, all this love at first sight stuff, are you off your rocker? But I handed it in. My editor said, well, happened to me. The acquisitions editor said, well, happened to me. Uh, the, one of the assistants said, happened to me. It, and I would ask, I'd be speaking to a room full of, of five or 6,000 people a, for a business convention. And I said, I want to ask you a question now for the next book I'm writing. Please put up your hand if you fell in love at first sight mutually. You wouldn't believe the forest of hands that went up. So sooner or later, you'll find the right person because it is a numbers game. And one of the reasons that, and, and you're, you're helping people meet more people, because the truth is to find your matched opposites, you need to meet 64, you, you actually have a one in 16 chance for people that you meet who are eligible, not somebody who's already married, but you need to meet to meet 16, uh, one in 16 will be your matched opposites, but you need to, to do that four times before you, you actually get it right. So it's a number it's one in 64 people that you meet. Uh, four of them will be your matched opposites. And you'll know it immediately. You'll sit there and think, oh my gosh, this person makes me feel awesome because they are actually validating your key feeling. I think that's a really interesting idea, this idea of key feelings. And one of the things that I've recognized or realized is that people generally have a way that they want to be seen, right? And it's very seldom as human beings that people see us the way that we want to be seen. And it sounds like when you talk about these key feelings that's part of what's happening would you agree with that or is it something else entirely no it's the only thing that's happening as long as they take your boxes in the looks department i know i was a fashion photographer for 25 years i know what 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 i like i know i like 
private women with good posture. Uh, I know, uh, you know, I know what, what, when I when I saw my wife, it was, well, it's in the book, and I'm not going to boast about it because most people think it's not true, and it's absolutely true. Within three minutes, I said, this is the craziest thing in the world, but I love you. And she said, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do now? Um, and uh, there was, you know, and, and, and we've been together ever since. Um, but it, but it, it happens. It's, it's almost when you find the right person, it's as if you've been flying around the cosmos for seven lifetimes and suddenly boink, you've bumped into each other. So the first thing people do that fall in love, mutually fall in love at first sight and it stays together is they talk for hours and hours and hours and hours. That people tell me what, okay, so what's the difference? How do you know when you find the right person? And the answer is this. When you, when you find the wrong person, it's exciting. You've met someone new. You're going to date them. You've, it's all exciting. And it's a bit nerve wracking. Uh, will they phone? Won't they phone? Will we get on? I can't wait. Blah, 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 blah. When you meet the person, you have all those feelings of excitement, but they're accompanied by a gigantic feeling of relief. Whew. Wow. This is it. I'm excited, but I'm not on edge anymore. I know, you just know it's right. And that doesn't come by scouring the, the world for people. You know, if you keep going to a bar to find someone, all you're going to find people is going to, who are going to bars to find somebody. And that may not be at all be uh, what, what's right for you. What you're teaching people, I think, is fabulous because um, <clears throat> the reason the divorce rate is so high in North America, it's 51% right now, is that people, well, I mean, the, the, the number one cause for, for divorce in the world is you married the wrong person in the first place. Uh, and the reason that happens to a big extent in North America is that North Americans in general don't socialize very much. They don't meet a lot of new people. In Europe, where I have many of my children live and where I commute to, people socialize twice a day sometimes. You know, I'm, I'm meeting a people for lunch, I'm meeting some a group of people. My youngest daughter, who's just moved to, to head a high-tech company in Norway, where she knew nobody, within three weeks started a supper club for expats and Norwegians who wanted to get together and, and, and speak English. Within three days, she had 200 people signed up. She did it on Facebook or whatever. Now they have a group and on one, I think it's the first Tuesday of every month, they go to a restaurant, they all meet up there, or they go to the, they just went to the opera. You know, from knowing nobody to knowing a big group of people um, through socializing in that way, you, you, you know, it's no point falling for the first person you see if you're absolutely desperate and say, oh, oh the guy who just moved my fridge, you know, he's cute. <laughs> or the girl who just moved my fridge. Or my so my kids' piano lessons, whatever, you know. It's 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 gonna happen when you least expect it. And of course, impatience is one of the biggest problems that most people have. They don't have a problem with dating, with charisma, with with finding people. They just have a problem with patience. Why do you think that is? Because we all naturally want to get stuff happening. I've got to find it because people are telling you what you haven't found the right person yet, blah, 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 blah. And you, that's all you're looking for. You know, and, and yet the funniest thing is, um, I, I put a little thing on Facebook yesterday. Um, if you don't know what you want, stop running so fast. You know, because how can you find the right person for you if you don't know what you're looking for? That was one of the essentials in my book. How can you find the right person? If you don't know what you're looking for, if you think I want tall, dark, handsome, rich, someone who looks like Brad Pitt or someone who looks like, I, I don't know, a big movie star, uh, then good luck. And uh, they can't even get on with each other. So it's it, the, half of my book, How to Make Someone Fall in Love with You, is to actually figure out who's the right person for you. Because otherwise, you're going to find that just by finding the wrong person over and over and over and over.
and then thinking, oh, I give up. How many times have people said to me, I give up, Nick, I give up. Uh, but I say to them, you know what? If you feel you're in a bad relationship, instead of blaming yourself, it's nothing. If, you, if you're dating and it's not working, it's nothing to do with you. It's nothing personal. You're with the wrong person. That's all. So go and invest your wonderful feelings of love in the right person. Get out and meet a few people. If somebody's listening to this and they feel like they don't quite know what they want, what should they do? Buy, borrow, rent my book, How to Make Someone Fall in Love with You. Um, some of the greatest, the greatest um, love experts, the real ones, uh, have said, you know, I hate the title, love the book. Um, but the title is meant to provoke. But it'll it'll show you it show you everything. It's like preparing yourself. You know, if what you're going to do, enter into a into a, a car race. If you don't fine tune your car first, you haven't got a chance. You know, fine tune yourself. Figure out and know immediately who who you know. You can find somebody who uh, who validates your your key feeling uh, on the subway. You can look at people and you will know. You'll get once you know what your key feeling is. When someone validates your key feeling, they don't even have to open their mouth. When you're with them, they will give off something. Uh, look, if, if you need to feel important and you meet someone who says, oh, you're so important, that would never work. You need to meet someone who makes you feel important just by the way they sit, by the way they look, whatever. And then you know that that has potential. So finding your key feeling uh, and then being able to, to, to set aside 75% of the people that won't work in your life, it will speed everything up for you. So that's what you should do. I'm not doing this to flog a book. Uh, you can you can probably find illicit copies of my book online. I know I know most of my books have been stolen and, and published. Uh, but but go and I wrote I wrote the book. Not well, I wrote the book obviously as a business thing. But I wrote it more that it breaks my heart to see people in unfulfilled relationships when I've got a really great one. So I wrote the book. But this is what really happens. Uh, and I do talk a bit about charisma. I, I tell the story. Of um, of William Gladstone and and Benjamin Disraeli um, in uh, in England, uh, they were both prime ministers in the last century. And William Gladstone was a genius, and Benjamin Disraeli was um, incredibly charismatic and charming. And the story goes of a young woman who was lucky enough one night to have dinner with with William Gladstone, and the next night to have dinner with Benjamin Disraeli, and. The night after that, her friends said, to her, "You know, you're amazing. How lucky you were to have dinner with those two great men. What was it like?" She said, "By the time I'd finished having dinner with with Sir William Gladstone, I thought he was the cleverest person in England. When I'd had dinner with Benjamin Disraeli, I thought I was the cleverest person in England. You know, and that's uh, charisma versus just pure intelligence." Yeah, I think it's a, that's a great example. It's a great story. I want to shift the some of the topics a little bit. I have a series of questions I want to ask you because, I mean, you do have so much great experience and you've done so much awesome research. And for people who are listening to this, your book is definitely available, um, but we have you on the line now. So I want to see what uh, uh, what we can learn from your wisdom. So I'm going to start a little bit with impressions. Um, why are first impressions so important and what can people do to make a great first impression? Well, we decide how we feel about someone in the first two seconds of seeing them or hearing them on the phone. It's part of the fight or flight response. You know, you've got someone walking up to your apartment, you look through your little spile, you're going to say straight away, that guy's not getting in here, or they are getting in here. Um, it's part of our de natural defense system, um, uh, the fight or flight. And and, um, and what you can do about it, you can do about lots about it when you, when you, it's it's all about, 
body language in the first uh, two seconds. It's, it's, uh, so I just tell you, um, uh, look at me in the eye, smile, adjust your attitude first. Attitude is everything. Uh, we are programmed to respond to someone else's attitude. If you're with someone who's angry, it, it makes you feel a certain way. If you're with someone who's happy and laughing, it makes you feel a different way. And that's just you responding to their attitude. Um, so the point about first impressions is that when we like someone, we tend to see the best in them and unconsciously look for reasons to say yes to them. When we don't like someone, the converse is true. We uh, we don't see, we see the worst in them and we look for opportunities to get out of there. And that does happen in the first couple of seconds. You can't do anything about it. I have people all the time who say, oh, Nick, when people get to know me, they really like me. Well, you know, that's great for your next door neighbor and your family and everyone else that can't escape from you. But when it comes to dating or business, um, it doesn't cut it. People have got to see the best in you straight away. How do you deal with that? Simple. Look them in the eye, smile, open your body language and synchronize your body language with their body language. That's the first second and a half. Then you have to get them talking. My next book, which I'm working on now, is called You're a Genius Until You Open Your Mouth. And that's the truth, too. We tend to give everyone the benefit of the doubt that they're smarter than us. And then they open their mouth and either prove it or disprove it. So that's the that's the power of a first impression. Basically, when people like you, they see the best in you. So you mentioned a few things. So just to recap, you said smiling, looking somebody in the eye. Uh, you also mentioned attitude. And attitude, it's, you can bring in a positive attitude. But some of this is is probably deeper work, right? It's like the stuff that's happening in your life right now. Uh, would you agree with that? No. Um, first of all, I, I, I said it out of order, but attitude definitely comes first. It's attitude, look them in the eyes, adjust your attitude, look them in the eyes, smile, open your body language, synchronize, then say something. However, um, your, uh, your attitude, I never talk about positive attitudes or negative attitudes. I talk about really useful attitudes and really useless attitudes. A really useful attitude, uh, it would be curious, enthusiastic, resourceful, uh, warm, laid back. Those are useful attitudes when you meet somebody else. Useless attitudes are rude, bored, hostile, or looking that way. You know the people that stand there with their arms fold looking at the floor when they're talking to you? They possibly don't realize what they're giving off, but they're giving off mixed messages. And mixed messages is absolute the absolute killer when it comes to charisma. Charismatic people, as you know, because you know more about this than I do, charismatic people are first and foremost congruent. In other words, their voice, their voice, their words, their voice tone, and their body language are all saying the same thing. They are congruent. That's what actors do. That's why they make you believe stuff, because their words, their voice tone, and their body language all say the same thing. We've all met those people that smile uh, and, and say, so nice to see you, then the smile drops into a, a, a horrible face after. So nice to see you, dear. Boom, enough, down goes the face. That's mixed messages. Um, when people, I, I used to teach presidential folk how to convey their messages. You know, if someone says, I have a, I have a vision and points sideways ways or down. They don't have a vision at all. If you have a vision, it's in front of you. That's where you're supposed to point. That's congruent. So all of your people who are learning to be charismatic, rule number one is uh, be congruent. George Clooney, I use sometimes as an example. He's great. He's completely congruent. His words, his voice tone, his sense of humor, et cetera, et cetera, and his body language all say the same thing. So you want to be with people who are charismatic like that. Yeah, there's a few interesting things that came to mind as you were talking. One is all the helpful attitudes that you described basically told the person you're interacting with that either you like them or you want to get to know them. And the useless attitudes, as you said, they conveyed mixed messages. And 
like maybe I like you, maybe I don't, right? So I'm looking at you, so that I'm giving you a, something positive, but I I'm folding my arms. So is that subcommunicating? Maybe I'm not interested, or I'm closed off. It could mean somebody's cold, right? But I found that really interesting. The second thing that I found really interesting is you talked about sort of actors and congruency and. And I thought about an acting, um, I, I did an acting conservatory for fun one summer because I'm always taking random classes. And one of the things that I picked up in there was that, like, I, I thought actors just sort of faked things. And what I realized in the class, what they tried to convey was, no, like, what you're doing is you might have a script, but you're living, you're actually living on stage, you're alive. And, and how do you do that? Well, if there's a situation where you're supposed to be sad in the script, that's hard to fake. But what you can do is you can explore an emotion where you felt sad, an experience where you felt sad, or you can imagine a circumstance where you could potentially feel sad. And you could explore that and start to feel that emotion. And then that brings, uh, that becomes the catalyst as you enter the scene. And then you're just alive. You're responding to the other human being the same way you would if you were authentically there in any other aspect of, of your life. And, and what happens is those emotions come to the surface in uh, your eye contact, the way you move in and out of somebody's space, uh, the way that you face them, your gestures, your voice, your tonality, your inflection, your volume. And so what I found really interesting is sort of that connection between the example used with acting, my experiences taking uh, courses from some pretty renowned acting teachers, and then uh, what you had said earlier about these sort of useful and not useful attitudes. Because in, in that situation where somebody's giving mixed messages, there's probably an, an emotional conflict that's happening on a deeper level. And that conflict is is manifesting into those mixed verbal and nonverbal cues. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's probably simpler than that. I mean, they're just doing what someone's told them to do, or they've read that they should be doing. Whereas with, you know, if someone says you should look them in the eye for 10 minutes, which is nonsense, I mean, it, all it takes is a quick flash looking at someone just notice what color their eyes are that's what i tell people to do um that's that's enough eye contact but but if you don't give any eye contact that's uh because eye contact says trust is in the air uh, a smile says a person is confident and happy uh if you can't do a real smile i show you how to do it in the book and it works every time um uh, synchronizing body language um sends the unconscious signal that i am like you sure because your body's doing respectfully because people who still have their natural people skills naturally uh, synchronize anyway, and I write about that. Um, sure, uh, but you know the, the attitude thing is, um, you know, you're not doing this. I don't think you're doing this to. You, you're about, it's all about being yourself. It's it's all about being yourself. But, but mostly, it's about getting out and meeting people, meeting more people. That's the secret. Then you'll just be yourself the whole time. If you're being someone else or trying to do what someone says, oh, you must say this, you must do that, you must. I've had people when I was a photographer who say, how do I pose an executive's finger? I was saying, are you serious? Uh, you know, just go be yourself, go read some magazines, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's, it's when you stop trying so hard and you top, stop trying so hard when you meet a lot of people. In, in uh, uh, Professor Thomas Harrell uh, from Stanford Business School spent 20 years looking across all areas of uh, business, uh, life and society, looking for what he called, trying to identify the success factor. And he came up with the number one identifiable predictor of success after 20 years reading research teams was something he called social extroversion, or in simple English, the ability to speak up. That's what was, 
in every successful person, that ability was, was there. In people who, for whom life was a big struggle, no matter what it was in, it was the people that didn't speak up. So it really comes down to, and I talk quite a bit about this in the book, that your biggest enemy when you're looking for your perfect partner is hesitation. It's, it's just we hesitate ourselves out of situations. Oh, you're looking at the, the, you know, looking at the girl across the room in the cafe and think, oh, I'm going to go up and talk to her. And, and but you know what? She's not finished her coffee. I'll wait till she finishes her coffee and then I'll go over. Or, or then, oh, she's, she's probably going to reorder. So I'll wait till she comes back from the counter and sits down again. And before you know it, some other guy's gone over and started talking to her. We hesitate ourselves. So you need the three second rule, which I'm sure you talk to people about. And that's in all my books. Make up your mind that something you want, then find a way to go over and talk to them. If it's in what we call a closed field, that's where people are expected to talk to each other, like in an office or at a convention, you're there to talk to people, you do it one way. If it's an open field, which I talk about in the love book, which is a bit different, how do you chat up a stranger in the supermarket? Well, that's different, but it's simple. I mean, you go over to the, wait till the vegetable counter, pick up a pineapple and say, hey, sorry, how do you tell if these things are fresh or not? There you go, you've broken the ice, and you can take it from there. And it, but it's, you do it naturally. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchristmas.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma Live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. If somebody's listening to this and they want to build more trust and rapport. How do they do that? Well, I mean, trust with yourself. You just have to make up your mind. You understand that this is a numbers game and you've got to meet a lot of people. Be congruent. Look them in the eye. Smile. Open your body language. Understand that for every 16 people that you meet, 15 of them aren't going to work for you. So you don't need to be surprised. You don't need to feel rejected. I mean, rejection is your biggest friend in this thing. You know, thank God. Thank, it's like going into to a, an IKEA store or a furniture store, picking the first sofa in the doorway. So I'll take that one, and then you take it home. And you think, oh, what am I thinking? Why didn't I go further in the store and look for more? Same thing. Rejection is there is no such thing as rejection. There's only selection. It's a selection process. So if you get reject, get good at getting rejected. Practice rejection, and and just go and meet a lot of people. Chat people up. The, thing, the funny thing is, the older you get, the easier it is to chat people up. The Brits, though, the British are great. They'll talk to anybody anywhere. Standing at the bus stop, uh, complete strangers, they'll talk to them. I have in the book scenarios where you can learn from how do you start a conversation with a stranger in a completely natural way. That's all you need to do. It's desperation. Desperation is the mightiest driver in the world in all things except dating. And in dating, it, it, it comes across as phony. 
And so you need to meet a lot of people. It means you need to get out. You need to set aside maybe a, if you want, set aside a year uh, where I'm going to get out. I'm going to get out four or five times or do what my daughter Pippa did, start a, start a, a little club for, for, for singles to, to meet. Just, just just locally, just maybe with your office or with your friends. Say, hey, why don't we get together every Tuesday, first Tuesday of every month, and and have supper and 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 bring a friend, you know, whatever. Simple things like that. It's a numbers game. It's a numbers game. Don't don't try too hard to come across as trusting. Um, don't do things that make you look silly. And 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 just be yourself. Be yourself. But you've got to work at getting out and meeting people. And look them in the eye. No, with no eye contact, there's no trust. But you don't have to stare them. I mean, the, here's the, here's a quick word about eye contact and and smiling. Too much of it is incredibly creepy. So just just enough. What what is just enough for somebody who doesn't know where that limit is? Oh, a split second, a split second. Look them in the eye. From if, if you're talking to somebody, just make sure that you're you look them in the eye. You glance at their eyes. Maybe you know. I don't want you to get your watch out either. Just remember to look them in the eye. Because the moment you look them in the eye, they're trusting you. Your words go where your eyes go. That's that simple. Your voice goes where your eyes go. And um, and there is a. I did this on on, uh, on the Good Morning America on uh, on no, I'm sorry on the Today Show once where I was being interviewed. There were the host and the, and the anchor and the hostess. And she said, "Okay, what what is this? What your eyes go and your voice goes?" I said, well, "Look, okay." I said, "Here's the thing." Here's what you can do if you want to accelerate flirting or chemistry. When you're talking to somebody, if I'm talking to a woman, I'm looking her in the eye, and when she starts talking, you let your eyes drift down very quickly to her lips, then back up to her eyes again, and you will throw the person right off balance. Don't go any further down than the lips, but it will throw them off balance, and it will make them flush, and it will send feelings of of uh, it will send feelings of love to them. Um, but don't go any further. Don't do it all the time. Just look down at the lips once, and then maybe whilst they're talking and nod and yeah, sure. And then a bit later, just let your eyes go down to their lips again, just quickly back up to their eyes. And it's a hugely strong signal of flirtation. What does it communicate? There is a. I start the love book off with a, with a, uh, an example of some work done by Arthur Aaron at uh, UCLA, where he wanted to find out if it was possible to fall in love at first sight. And uh, well, actually, his goal was to fall in love in 90 minutes or less. And what he did was he put two people, complete strangers, came into a room, even through separate doors. And the deal was they had to sit and talk to each other for 90 minutes, uh, just chat and uncomfortably. And then every so often, after every 20 minutes or so, a researcher would come in and say, look, just tell a person something about them that, that you like. And and then they would say the same to the other. Okay, tell now tell him something about him you like. Not a big deal from having just met. And this would go on, and uh, they did that every twenty minutes. And then at the end, they said, "All we want you to do now is to, to gaze into each other's eyes for ninety seconds. Then this is all over." And they gazed and in, gazed into each other's eyes for ninety seconds. The very first couple that left that room got married, and lots and lots of them. They fell in love. Deep and got and got married. This was, uh, I think, in about '97 or something, when people still got married. And uh, but the thing is, so it proves you can fall in love at first sight. But they probably have not followed. It probably didn't work because you may not have fallen in love with the right person. You both fell in love with each other because your souls are totally connected in that room. 
Well, that's what, so that's why matched opposites have to happen. But yeah, you can make, you can fall in love with somebody. If you can gaze into someone's eyes, even with a guy, I used to, when we were testing the book, we get, I go to the, the learning annex, which I don't think is around anymore, and get a bunch of strangers and test it on them. And I even get guys to, to gaze into each other's eyes for, for construction guys and all kinds, of, gaze into each other's eyes for, for 90 seconds. And it just got downright embarrassing because they're, huh. How come I'm not doing this? This is very uncomfortable because they knew what was happening. They were, you fall, you fit, you see someone's soul, you see God in each other's eyes. That's exactly what it is. Because the truth is that uh, no matter who you're with, I mean, even with you now, Chris, I can say that, you know, I am just you having a different set of experiences in my life. And you're just me having a different set of experiences. You know, I grew up in England and, and spoke a certain way, went to a kind of school, but I'm just basically, basically all the same person just doing different experiences. But sometimes like attracts like and opposites attract opposites. They don't work together very well. I mean, one thing I, I did observe based on the examples that you used around eye contact, because you talked about using, just making a split second eye contact. And then you talked about how these people looked into each other's eyes for 90 seconds. And I worry that people listening to this guys are gonna be like, I'm gonna try to look into her eyes for 90 seconds when I first meet her. But I think it would make most people really uncomfortable, but there was like a safe context that allowed people to connect in a way that they don't normally connect with other people. And I think that's part of what caused that bonding process. Would you agree with that? Or do you think there's something else going on? Yeah, yeah. look, if you want to try this with somebody else, on the, by the, maybe by a second date, say, hey, look, you know, I was listening to this guy on the radio. It sounded like a complete load of rubbish. But he said, if two people gaze into each other's eyes for 90 seconds, all sorts of you know, nice things happen. You fight, are you game to give it a go? Well, we and well, we don't both crack up laughing. You, you, of course, you will both crack up laughing, and that's a good thing too because you're both doing something together and it's fun. But say, let's try. Let's go ninety seconds looking into each other's eyes without saying a word, and you'll either burst up laughing, which is a great thing for the pair of you because it means you've found something to laugh about, or you'll actually do it and you go, "Ooh, that was really freaky." So yeah, try it, but don't don't try don't sit at a bar and gaze at somebody without telling them. They'll think you're the you're you're a maniac. I've I've definitely experienced friends who were testing this, and I don't know if they read the study or what they were doing. Uh, but even guys who maybe they weren't trying to get me to fall in love with them, but there are guys who are like trying to test dominance, and I know they were testing it because they we would talk about what they were doing, and they would tell me they were testing these things when I was a younger guy, way before I was a coach, and I just remember how weird it was. And I know that I wasn't the only person who felt it was weird because this guy didn't ever blink. <laughs> I'm thinking about one specific friend. <laughs> it's like a parlor game or a party. But I mean, I mean, I'm curious what you said about dominance. What, what's this about dominance? Um, I, I think in the example I'm thinking of, I had a friend of mine uh, when I was in college and he would hold extended eye contact for a long period of time. I recently ran into him. He's not doing this anymore. I hadn't seen him in like seven or eight years. But I know at that time he was reading a lot of a lot of things and testing them, and I think he was trying to hold eye contact for extended periods of time with people to test dominance, like as a form of of dominance. But it just made him made people feel uncomfortable, right? Because there's like this range of of eye contact that somebody feels confident, and then there's this range of eye contact where it starts to make somebody come off as weird. And he was falling into the weird place. And we did talk about. Not that specific, but some of his behavior when he was younger and we were in college and we didn't talk for like seven or eight years because I said, I want to apologize because I was testing a lot of things and uh, I was reading things and I was testing them and trying to sort of figure myself out. And th that was essentially what I was describing. 
Because, yeah. you know, it's just bad manners. <laughs> yeah, that for sure. Because, you know, you, you use the word charisma, and I mean, it's a popular word, but, you know, it's really, it's really just uh, charm. It's just about being charming. I mean, it, when you meet someone, they're either charming or alarming, or they're just boring. Can you define what charming means to you? Charming, uh, yeah, you're polite, <laughs> you have good manners, you know how to start a conversation, you know how to let somebody respond to you. You know, look, years ago, I don't know if they're still, oh, they're probably coming back, actually. People would go to charm school to learn how to walk and learn how to come through a door properly. You know, you, you walk through a door there's a certain way and you come across, you give off a certain confidence, a certain grace. You know, that's that's all charm. I mean, charm really is 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 good manners, uh, being groomed appropriately. That I'm not saying you have to wear a suit. You can wear, you know, sawn off jeans and a green mohican as long as they're nicely sawn off and your mohican standing up properly. Um, and that you are, it's like I say, you're a genius till you open your mouth. You know, so that when you say something, it's charming that you let the other person have their say. Um, and uh, it's like the story I told you of Disraeli. Disraeli was just simply charming. Of course, he was charismatic. Charisma is interesting. Charismatic people, as I said earlier, tend to have, um, we are attracted to people whose faces, uh, features, are symmetrical. Most people are not symmetrical. Uh, they may have, you know, the one eye sport slightly smaller or higher or lower than the other. Their mouth may not be symmetrical. Uh, so, Truly charismatic people are charm plus um, charm plus symmetry, and that's why we t tend to find ourselves. Somebody walks into a cafe and you're looking over at the person, think, "Wow, what is it making me look at that person?" It's actually that they're symmetrical, uh, and, they, and there are some other dimensions. I think it's one to one to one point three. I think the the way your eyes are spaced to the width of your head, uh, your nose to your to the rest of your head, your your jaw to your lips, your mouth. To, they're all they all go in this four to three ratio which is well one and a third to one is how they put it but it's a four to three ratio and it, it attracts us to people um, because it's very hard to define i don't know how you define it's hard to define what sexy people are and it's hard to define what um charismatic people are i mean i think that's an interesting sort of thing to bring up i, mean, I could get into the history of why we chose the word charisma and like what domains were available and all these sort of other variables um but the, the primary reason why words are important to me is it's because it's the way that we attempt to communicate and connect with an, another human being. It's one of the ways, right? And so whether you're using charisma or you're using charm or using manners or you're using some word in another language or you're using something entirely different, that doesn't mean anything to me. What, what matters is the essence of the thing. And we use these labels and these labels evolve, right? So what a word means at one point can evolve over time. Language is, is a dynamic organism. And so um, what a word means at one point and what it means at another point in time can be entirely different or what it means in one culture and in another culture or subculture can be entirely different. What's more important to me is the essence of the thing. And so when I ask you some of these questions, I understand and I'm going on this rant because I want the listeners to understand that you don't have to get so tied up on the technical language. The language is important because it's how we communicate and express the idea and we build that connection. In this case, we might be connecting an idea uh, for you in your brain or attempting to do so, but it's the essence of the thing and that's what we're trying to get to. And in that way, language sometimes works really well and sometimes it's inadequate. 
Like uh, sometimes, even though like you and me are talking about these things, uh, we might not be fully uh, uh, expressing sort of the underlying essence of it or able to communicate it. And even though we might be better than other people at it, which is why you've written a book and why, why I'm able to run a company that sort of teaches some of these concepts, it's really important to understand that language is dynamic, um, that it evolves, that it changes, that it's always in, inadequate, even when it does work. So I, I just I wanted to bring that up because I know you mentioned the idea of charisma multiple times, and yeah, it's uh, I agree with you. Well, I kind of agree. Actually, I I think language is is devolving um, with uh, with text, etc. I know I know that some of the words I used to use uh, at my workshops I don't use anymore because people don't know what they mean. Yeah, well, it just changes. That's what I'm getting at. So whether we use evolving, devolving, it just language changes, right? And so people are communicating now in ways that they couldn't communicate 20 years ago. As far as like verbal language, I, I remember talking to a friend of mine who was saying that um, in Elizabethan England, there's a belief that there were a lot more sort of active uh, words in, in everyday vocabulary. Somebody who studies Shakespeare can sort of look this up um, and do research. Maybe they can send me some information on it. But he was he was making this argument based on his research that people used more words in an everyday conversation. And Part of the belief was that was because people lived in such close proximity and were forced to interact face to face to face every day. And what that caused was more growth in the language within face to face communication. Yes, absolutely. So as we become disconnected, I can see your argument. I'm not arguing that language is evolving or devolving. Uh, I'm just saying that uh, it's a dynamic organism that's constantly changing. I agree with you completely, absolutely, completely. The, the subtitle of my book, um, uh, You're a Genius Till You Open Your Mouth, the subtitle is um, How to Talk Like the World's Greatest Communicators and Why It Matters. And it, and in fact, the world's greatest communicators tend to talk in metaphor and story, well, they use story speak, um, where they will tell stories. Uh, Nielsen, uh, Nielsen Research in November last year published a paper which identified that in the Western world, which where we are, um, we spend an average of 10 hours and 35 minutes a day listening to stories of one kind or another. Whether it's the news, whether it's reading a blog, whether it's listening to a podcast, because everything that's going on, all we're doing now is telling our stories to each other. Um, whether it's a recipe, whether it's standing around at the, the, uh, at the water cooler, uh, they look through everything. 10 hours and 35 minutes a day telling stories. So my book is really, it's all about what I call story speak. How do you take advantage of that? And one of the ways, if you were referring to language right now, is by speaking in, in picture words and, and metaphors and stories. When, when, when Warren Buffett was asked uh, by Bill Gates, how do you define success? He said, I tap dance to work. Um, that's story speak. That's putting a picture in where you otherwise would need 17 paragraphs. And we all get it. People can see it, you can hear it, you can feel it. You know, when when uh, when Warren Buffett was asked to describe what had happened in the financial break uh, cr crash, he said, "The tide's gone out, and now we can see who's been swimming naked." You know, this is this is a great language to learn to to be charismatic, to put if you can put pictures and sounds and feelings into people's heads, you'll capture everything. You'll capture romance. You'll capture. Uh, they will they will definitely be attracted to you because you've actually stepped into their imagination and fired it up. And uh, one of the papers I've just finished writing was that intelligence is overrated. 
Um, the ability to arouse enthusiasm in other people is the greatest asset any of us possess. And if it comes to charisma or dating or finding uh, a, a, someone, a, a companion, or, I mean, really, all you're doing is arousing enthusiasm in them to see things your way, especially in your favor. That's what you're doing. So you don't need to show them how intelligent you are. You just need to get their imagination fired up. How do two people do that? So I guess what I'm getting at is you're not implying or are you implying that one person is doing that over another person or are you implying that both people do this in each other? No, if your goal, no, you can't. No, that's that. No, if your goal is to find somebody at a at a bar and, and, and chat them up, then you need to become, this is one of the words I've actually dropped. It's a French word that we use in England all the time, which is raconteur. A raconteur is somebody who tells stories with wit. Okay, and a raconteur is the guy who can go and park his car in the supermarket parking lot. And by the time he gets into the supermarket, he has a story to tell. He says, you won't believe what happened to me in the parking lot. They're just backing in. And what they do, they'll set the scene, the who, the where, the when, the why, what happened. And they'll make it sound interesting. A raconteur is someone who can make anything sound interesting and amusing. So that's chapter one in my new book is how do I become a raconteur? But when I went out and started doing this on... And on podcasts or whatever, and or especially with live ones or on on um, in workshops, people would put their hand up and say because they didn't know what the word was. And one woman put her hand up and said, "What's a rat hunter?" I said, "No, not rat hunter, raconteur." But the answer to your question is, "How do you do?" So you you just go. You you're the person that arrives at the bar and can just talk and make things sound interesting. And it's by being a raconteur. You just start. I've got five steps to becoming a great raconteur. And that's the person you need to be. So it's yourself. Because we all have it in us. We have the ability to arouse enthusiasm in other people programmed into us. That's what makes us human. So learn how to. And that's what you, when you're talking about charisma, you're using your charisma to arouse enthusiasm in somebody else. And, and part of having that charisma is the ability to make the most mundane things sound simple and interesting, and quite often by putting a picture into someone else's head. It's as simple as, you know, Steve Jobs renamed the graphical interface modulator indicator, whatever it was, as a mouse. It's kind of like a mouse, you know. Uh, he renamed your the screen of your computer with all the little icons and stuff on it. He called it a desktop. It's just about putting picture words, substituting something complicated with a simple word. And people that can do that, they it makes you more interesting and more desirable. And because you arouse enthusiasm in other people and you put a smile on their face and they want more of you. I think it's a really interesting idea. You've said this at multiple points in this podcast and uh, in multiple different ways. But just this idea that when people feel good around you, they want to be close to you. Sure. And and how do how do you do that? Listen, it's we are suckers for stories. And stories of one kind, even if it's gossip, even if it's all these, you know, it's who won on the Bachelorette and what was I doing when I watched it. We tell somebody a story. We suck. Stories are to the human mind what food and fresh air are to the body. We can't live without them. Everything. We, I'm telling you stories now. I'm telling you about my experiences. You're telling me about your experiences. The people who are listening are probably going connecting something that happened to them. It's all about the story. Not the once upon a time, you know, just about little snippets of what happened to you today. And learning how to do that will make you more interesting. 
I've used to work with people who were so-called shy. I mean, there's no such thing as shy. It's not a human attribute, but it's basically someone who doesn't know how to explain their ex experiences to somebody else. That's all we do all day long. We go into the world and we have experiences. We explain our experiences to ourselves. Then we explain them to other people. The better you are explaining your experiences to other people, the more they'll be drawn to you. That's all. It's that simple. Except we don't teach at school. So you said there's five attributes. Can you talk about those? Because I think this is so interesting. And No, I can't actually right now because I, quite honestly, I'm not even sure where they are. And the whole proposal is in New York with my publisher and I'm not allowed to talk about stuff that's in it. But but it's it's really simple. It's well, I, mean, I can tell you one of them, for example. Um, great community, I call them genius communicators. Genius communicators pause between sentences and sometimes even in the middle of a sentence. Genius communicators tend to go down at the end of it. Well, they do go down. Their voices go down at the end of the sentence. And yet right now, we are living in a world where people are frequently going up at the end of sentences. I went into the store and I looked over at where the shirts were and I couldn't make up my mind. And so I found my friend and we spoke about that is nightmare to the way we process language because there's no conclusion to it. But a lot of people now, because it's like texting, they go up at the end and they never come down again. We accept that the sentence is over and the point is made when, when the voice comes down at the end. And it's normal. That's what people normally do. Except you can listen out to a lot of people go up at the end of a sentence, which is hugely confusing to the, the way we process language. I, I have a couple of additional questions. One was about uh, sensory preferences. What are the three sensory preferences that you talk about? And how can someone determine their own sensory preference and learn to recognize sensory preferences in others? We go into the world and have experiences through our senses before we even put things into language. We see, we hear, we well, we see, we have physical sensation, um, we hear, smell and taste. It tends to be that most people, by the time they've reached puberty, have ended up relying on one sense more than the rest. We use all of them, but some people... Some people tend to make their decisions based on uh, the way things look. Some people make their decisions based on the way things sound and others based on the way things feel. A simple example would be, which I put in my book, uh, I'd make people like you in 90 seconds or less. Let's suppose I'm a travel agent and someone comes into my travel agency. If I can spot that that person, and they want to go on holiday, if I can spot, say, that that person is, uh, is uh, auditory, where sound is their primary sense, I'd say, I've got a great place for you. It's really quiet. All you can hear are the waves and the gulls. It's away from all the noise of the city. That is what they want. I'm telling you how it sounds. If they were, say, kinesthetic, touchy-feeling, I would say, I've got a great place for you. The sand's soft. The water's warm. The bed's really comfortable. I'm telling them how it feels. If they're visual, I say, look at the pictures. Just look at it. Isn't that beautiful? And so when you can find out the sensory preference of people close to you, uh, your partner, you can start to talk. Uh, in their language. For example, one of my daughters and my wife are kinesthetic, so I'll talk to them about the way things feel. How do you feel about this? And how do you feel about that? To my son, who is visual, I say, Thomas, how do you see things working out? Where, where do you see this going? How do you picture this? And to my auditory child, and, uh, and I'm also auditory, I'd say, how does this sound to you? I'm actually going in on their channel, their wavelength, that's all. And uh, you need to get good at spotting, A, what you are, um, and there's no quick fix of that. I, in How to Make People Like You, there's a, a 10-question quiz that you fill the quiz in, and by the end you'll find out what you are. 
And, and because you'll also find then that you tend to be drawn to, I mean, I suspect that you're auditory, that uh, we tend to, it's easy for us to sit here and chat to each other because we both, we're both interested in concepts and, and, uh, and, and words. So we, you and I are getting on fine. We're just chatting away uh, because we're probably both audies. Uh, so when you can find, it's like putting the square peg, the round peg and the, and the, and the triangular peg to the right hole. Find, a, find out what the people close to you are and talk to them on that wavelength. But for everybody else, you need story speak because by telling a story, you appeal. When Warren Buffett said, I tap dance to work, the visuals can see it, the auditories can hear it and the kinesthetics can feel what it's like. That's exactly the appeal of all that stuff. How does somebody spot this in another person? Well, you you have you you'll need to figure out what you are first, all right? Um, by doing this, and then you're only left with you're either with someone who's like you, and you'll know that immediately, or there are only two other options left, and it's pretty quick to figure out whether that person's visual or kinesthetic. Simple, a couple of simple clues: visual people tend to dress sharp, uh, kinesthetic people tend to dress comfortably because their world's all about feeling and stuff like that. Their desks and their rooms may be a bit of a mess. Uh, visual people like to, things to look nice around them, uh, so they dress like that and they look like that. Um, they speak at different speeds. Visual people tend to speak more quickly than, auditory, than kinesthetic people who can take forever to say something in all kinds of detail that makes you say, look, it's okay, I got it 10 minutes ago. Uh, and auditories, again, auditory people take care of their words. They choose them wisely because words are their currency and so are their voices. Uh, auditory people... Um, uh, think they dress well, they tend to dress to make a statement to other people. So simple things like that. And uh, but don't don't, you know, it's it's complicated enough meeting with a stranger um, uh, to start with rather than trying to figure out whether they're auditory. Listen to the words they say. Um, you know, if they say, oh, I was really hard pressed to get here, but I pushed my way through the crowd. Well, it's pretty obvious that they're kinesthetic. Um, if they say, you know, oh, I, guess I couldn't see a cab for miles and I, I, everything, they, they'll describe the way things look. But don't worry about that. If you want to be carried, if you want to be, you see, when you get into that stuff, you're not a leader, you're a follower. When you try hard to, to impress somebody, you're just being a, for, a follower, not a leader. And that's not impressive at all. No one wants to be people trying to, trying to impress somebody else. This puts you as a, as a follower. You use the example of, I hear what you're saying, or, or I can imagine someone saying, I feel you, or we use that example, but you also used it as a way to connect with your family, right? And so I can totally get what you're saying about being a leader, right? Be, you be yourself, you put yourself out there, you just be you. And in the process, just let people react to you and just be yourself and be authentic and be real. Like I'm, that message is coming loud and clear. And, and I can see that and, or even imagine how that could sort of gives off those leadership qualities, but you're also using it to connect with your family. And so I want to sort of parse this a little bit because for somebody who's listening to this, I don't want them to be confused. Can you explain that distinction? I'm a good communicator. That's all. There is no line. Um, if, if I've found over the years, it's quicker to talk in, in somebody's language using their sensory preference. I just do that. And, and, and it's natural to me and it seems perfectly natural to me to say someone who makes their decisions through by the way things sound or the way things look. Um, you know, I mean, uh, again, I talk about my wife. Wendy and I have been together for for 46 years. You know, she she used to, if she said to me, can't you see how I feel? I would have to, well, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't dare say it, but I feel like saying, 
well, give me a minute and I'll work it out. <laughs> because I don't see and I don't, and, and I'm auditory. But she knows better. She will say to me, Nick, you're not listening to a word I'm saying. She has my attention because I'm auditory and words are my currency. So that's all you need. Instead of saying, can't you see how I feel? You're not listening to me. And she has my attention. It's that simple. And this is not manipulative. It's just getting better at using language. And it's I agree. I, I mean, I think that people listening, like our content, we're just trying to develop better human beings, right? And so there's this idea of sort of general wellness. And it's not just about, I mean, the company's called Craft Charisma, but I mean, if I took all our questions, which is really, we're re really in the dating and socializing space. Within the dating space, I could break them down to one of five categories. One is, the first set is people just trying to get themselves into a better place. That might be emotionally, psychologically, financially. They're just trying to get to a place where they feel like they can go out and meet people. The second one is they want to go out and meet people. And for straight guys, a subset of that's going to be women. A subset of that's going to be women they're going to want to date. And you can do all kinds of iterations on whether our client's a girl or a guy or gay or straight. Um, the third is how do you move that intimately, physically and emotionally? So someone goes from an acquaintance or friend to a sexual partner, their lover. The fourth one is how do you build a relationship with somebody? How do you get into a relationship? What does that look like or feel like? What does it sound like in, within language? And then the fifth one is how do you build a partnership? And so at some point along that journey, usually people get stuck. And you described your first marriage as not working out. And then you found a woman that you've been with for 46 years. And that's really an incredible feat and i think it's absolutely amazing and i think a lot of people who are listening to this if they ask themselves and they're being they're honest when they were younger like maybe they wanted to go out and meet a lot of girls and maybe they wanted to hook up with somebody at the pub but as we get older i think a lot of people realize what they want is to feel loved and accepted and there's other things as well but they're looking for partnership and especially if you they want to raise a family with somebody so at some point along this journey these stages i find people get stuck and things don't work out they end up back at the beginning trying to figure themselves out again. So after your divorce, maybe you immediately were ready to, to go out again, but there's probably a pause in your life where you need to sort of recollect yourself and sort of emotionally reboot. Maybe not, um, but I find that a lot of people do. I, I came up with a speech called How to Survive to 105. And I stopped doing it mostly because people say, well, I don't want to survive to 105. Well, I do, <laughs> yeah. going to, but, but here's what it's based on. Um, in the last 160 years, life ex human life expectancy has grown by 40 years in the Western world. Um, if you're any good at math and do the math, that means 40 years and 160 years, that's a four to one ratio. That means life expectancy grows at the rate of one year every four years. That means that human life expectancy grows at the rate of one day every four days, or to put it in more, even more stunningly, in the last 160 years, human life expectancy has grown at the rate of six hours a day, every day. That is mind-blowing, and it is the truth. You can do the math, you can go, I, when I first heard that, I couldn't handle it. I thought, wait, that can't be right. But it does mean that a baby born tomorrow will live six hours longer than a baby born today. And the Max Planck Institute of Longevity in Germany, the world's leading experts and Nobel Prize winning experts, are now, they are advising actuaries and insurance companies that a baby born today will live to 105. But they won't for three reasons, and that's what my speech was about. If you're interested, I can quickly give you those three reasons. I would love they, they totally uh, are related to what you've just been talking about. What do you think the reason number one, this is, this is outside of disastrous things like terrible car accidents or some, some horrible disease or disaster. Reason number one is your self-talk, the way you talk to yourself. 
Um, the so the way some people say, oh, you know, my mother died when she was seventy. I'm only going to live till I'm seventy-one, or or it's the way you talk to yourself. Your self-talk is responsible for how long you will live. Your self-talk is also responsible for your lifestyle. If you say, oh, I'm just going to have a couple more beers and I'll watch another movie and then I'll have some popcorn and then I'll go home, that's your self-talk. That's killing you. Your self-talk affects your lifestyle. Number two reason, your postal code. Your postal code has more effect on your on your on your longevity than your genetic code. Where you live, who you hang out with, because if you live in, and you can go online, any city in the world, you can get stats on, if you live in the northeast part of this city, or that part of the city, or this part of the city, average life expectancy there is 72, here it's 84, da da da. It's where you live, you hang out with different people, you eat different foods, your posture's different, you dress differently, you have different kinds of conversation, think different kinds of thoughts. And the third one is your willingness to take risks. We are energy systems in nature. We only have two settings, growth or decay, like anything in nature, whether it's a flower, an economy, a loving relationship. Um, uh, there are only two settings. When you're not growing, you're going. Growth or decay. And we, human beings only come alive and grow when there is a slight whiff of danger in the air. That's the only time your body goes, whoa, wait a sec, or when you're learning something new. That's the only time we come alive. So we have to keep coming alive and growing. So getting out, meeting new people, Pushing yourself to go and meet lots of people is good for your health because you're taking you're taking risks. And that's the only way we grow. Look at every business, every person you can think of has been successful. And I'm sure you can tell stories yourself of what you went through to get where you are today. It's only when you took I don't not talking about gambling with fate. I'm not talking about getting drunk and driving a car to the casino and blowing a pension. OK, I'm talking about taking slight risks. You know, even if you run across a busy road, your brain is so alive and you're processing so much information and you're really growing just to get you across a, a busy road. Anyway. Nick, this, is, this has been absolutely awesome. With that, I'll, I'll wrap this up. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been a pleasure. If you're listening to this and you want to learn more about Nick, I'm going to post some links in the description of this podcast and on the Craft Christmas website so that you can find out about him and everything he does more easily. Thank you, Nick, for taking the time to chat with me. Take care. All the best. Bye. It's dating coach Chris Lona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.